Welcome to Health or Consequences, the Massachusetts Healthcare and Public Health podcast that is, comes to us under the Commonwealth Beacon label. I'm Paul Hattis from the Lowne Institute, here with my co-host, John McDonough of the T.H. Chan Harvard School of Public Health. And today we're delighted to invite with us Barbara Fain, Executive Director of the Lehman Center, a state government agency that we think maybe a lot of our podcast listeners don't know a lot about, but they will by the end of today's discussion with Barbara. Barbara is somebody I actually met about 30 years ago. She was the first state government official that I think that I had policy discussions with, but she's done other, other things since she was an assistant attorney general at the time. So Barbara, if you would get started by just telling our podcast listeners a bit about your background, if you would. So uh, first of all, thank you, John and Paul, for for having me and and providing this opportunity. Um, uh, just a little bit about my background. I'm, I always say I'm a, a a lawyer, a lawyer by training, and a public policy person, a, a health policy person. Um, I've had the privilege of working in this space uh, for for most of my career. Um, you mentioned I was at the Attorney General's office, so I've been sort of in and out of state government. I've um, I've I've actually worked in pretty much every sector, um, and uh, and was appointed um, ten years ago, uh, just coming up like in two weeks, um, to uh, as the executive director of the Betsy Lehman Center for Patient Safety, which, as you mentioned, is um, a state agency. It was newly established at the time, and I've um, just had the um, the great fortune to be able to um, to do a do a startup in state government, which is which is always uh, which has been exciting. So, Barbara, um, twenty three years ago in the year two thousand, the National Academy of Medicine released a landmark report called "To Air Is Human," which was a national look at medical errors and patient safety. Uh, the report estimated that as many as ninety eight thousand Americans die every year because of avoidable and preventable medical errors committed in hospitals. It set off a national movement to prevent error in medicine. And then after a few years, pretty much dropped off the radar screen of the public. Um, What has happened on this issue in the past 23 years? Are we better off, worse off? And then we'll get into Massachusetts. So first, um, let's define what we mean when we talk about preventable medical error, because I don't think that's always clear to people. So these include uh, things like um, medication errors, like when a patient is given the wrong uh, drug or the wrong dose of a drug. It can uh, include surgical errors, like when the wrong eye or leg or even the wrong patient is operated on or when a foreign object is uh, left in the patient. That's like the more dramatic um, uh, kinds of situations. But, you know, the most frequent uh, causes of preventable uh, patient injuries and death relate to things like inadequate uh, infection control practices, um, also delayed and misdiagnoses, um, often from breakdowns in communications or other factors. Um, So to your question of what what does the landscape look like uh, today, um, on the positive side, um, we'd say that there's been a lot of progress um, over the past couple of decades on uh, understanding really what causes medical error and what can prevent it. Um, we also um, have an understanding um, that, you know, because it's humans in the system, we can't, um, the goal can't be to eliminate all uh, human error. Part of the solution um, is for healthcare providers to establish strong systems and safety cultures that can prevent uh, the errors that do happen from harming patients. 
Um, and we even uh, have amassed a pretty good uh, body of strategies that are proven to reduce patient harm. But uh, the problem has been that like knowing what to do and actually doing it aren't the same thing. And uh, uptake of all of these strategies, all of this knowledge has been really, really slow. Um, so one challenge relates to change management, you know, leading uh, change in an organization's culture and operations hard work. Um, and uh, the resources that um, healthcare leaders often need to support these efforts aren't widely available to all. There's also this interesting problem of low awareness and expectations, and you know, which is why I'm glad to be on this podcast today. You know, other than the occasional headline, when you think about it, medical errors um, actually have pretty low visibility. Um, so this leads people, um, whether it's the public or policymakers, to believe that these are really isolated incidents or random bad luck or kind of even the unavoidable byproducts of, you know, a complex uh, healthcare system that can do a lot of amazing things. You know, most people reasonably assume that the necessary safeguards exist and aren't aware that um, they're often lacking. And so all of this contributes to the fact that there's there's never been any um, real uh, strong grassroots pressure to prioritize safety in healthcare. Um, we have a lot of other priorities in healthcare, but safety is not um, top of the list. Um, so when it comes to um, actual outcomes, it's hard to say if the country um, is better or worse or the same as 23 years ago. Um, I think before the pandemic, uh, there had been some good progress in certain areas. So one example is healthcare associated infections. Um, but unfortunately, um, many of those gains uh, were eroded during the pandemic. And um, the good news is it does show the change is possible when you do make resources available and you, in, and you have uh, incentive structures that align. Another thing I'd mention is that the 98,000 uh, annual deaths you referred to um, only include deaths associated with hospitals, but you know, more, more and more care is shifting from hospitals to ambulatory settings, long-term care, including people's homes. And there's strong evidence um, that more serious harm events are happening in those settings. So bottom line is that uh, despite all this work over the past couple of decades, healthcare really uh, is still not anywhere near as safe as it could or should be. Is, is anyone counting? Do we even have any sense of numbers of going up or down improvement or decline? You know, it's it's really hard. So at the national level, you know, the federal government does some um, data collection on certain um, certain areas. So infections is, is one area. In terms of like really sort of systemic, comprehensive counting um, of events and types of events and trends, we don't have a good sense of that. And that is also another um, you know, another reason that we don't have good progress, you don't have to measure everything, but when you're not um, really able to measure at all, it kind of, you know, reduces accountability. Barbara, let me focus you to Massachusetts, which even six years before that landmark report to Air as Human, we sadly experienced in 1994, the death of medical reporter Betsy Lehman, which was very much in the media. She died, unfortunately. As a, as a global medical reporter who died at Dana-Farber at the time because of a mistaken and massive chemotherapy overdose. About 30 years later now, here we are in Massachusetts working on this problem. You're executive director of the Laidman Center, which is in charge and mission includes working on that problem. How are we doing in this state, better or worse or uh, about the same as, as sort of John asked you at a national level? So a couple years before the pandemic, the Betsy Lehman Center set out to answer that exact question of like, you know, where where are we? Where are we now? 
And so we conducted two major studies to develop just a snapshot of the impact of medical error on the state's healthcare system in a single year. The first study analyzed health insurance claims data to uh, measure the number of preventable harm events um, in, a, in a single year in Massachusetts, as well as the uh, financial costs to the system uh, of those events. And the numbers were uh, pretty striking. So we, we were able to um, identify almost 62,000 um, individual cases of preventable harm. So these are harm. These aren't like errors that didn't hurt. What we're looking at in claims data is the additional medical care that was provided to people in the aftermath of, of the, the events to- That's, a, that's an annualized them. number you're estimating? That was in a single, that was in one single year. We basically took a 12-month period and using uh, the all-payer claims database, using a methodology that had uh, been developed nationally, uh, we very conservatively um, identified 62,000 cases, I think 400 different categories of medical errors. These events, um, just in terms of financial impact, they resulted in um, over $617 million in excess health insurance claims for that year. In that year, it was just over 1% of total health care spending. Um, and a couple key points about these data um, the harm events, I mean, we were able to look beyond hospitals. Um, so anywhere that uh, health insurance claims, any, any, anyone filing claims on uh, any settings that filing claims on health insurance um, with health insurers. Um, so the harm events um, we're finding, they occur across the entire continuum of care, not just hospitals and really everywhere. So, you know, this means that we, we really can't think about unsafe care as a problem that can be solved by weeding out bad apples. It's a system-wide problem. Uh, also, our numbers, um, as I mentioned, they dramatically undercount the number of events that we were using a conservative methodology. And some of the most common types of harm events, like injuries and falls or delays in critical diagnosis, we can't pick those up using claims data. So this is just a very, very conservative estimate. The second study, you know, people like to focus on the the the, the dollars and the, the the big numbers. We also looked at um, the human cost of these harm events, and through a very uh, large statewide phone survey and follow up interviews with Massachusetts residents, we found that um, at least one in five Massachusetts residents had experienced a medical error in their own care or the care of a household member um, in the previous five years. And um, we also got into the the impacts of these events on patients and families. They're tremendous. I mean, people reporting just incredibly long-lasting physical, emotional, financial tolls. And one of the most troubling aspects of what we heard from from patients and families was that um, basically these events cause them to lose trust in the healthcare system, particularly when providers fail to communicate openly about the mistakes that were made that had harmed them. And that was usually the case. Um, and the loss of trust. Um, um, was had led many of them to avoid healthcare altogether, which brings with it its own set of problems. Um, I get back to your your question about how do we compare to other states, and sadly the answer is we we really don't have a good way to know. Um, I'd like to say we're doing better than most, given how many leading experts and advocates for healthcare safety um, are based right here in Massachusetts. But I wish there were uh, evidence to support that. So just to give you an example, I mean, by law in Massachusetts, the Department of Public Health mandates reporting certain categories, um, 29 categories of adverse safety events, uh, mainly by hospitals, though, um, also uh, surgery centers and, and nursing homes. 
But by design, those systems just pick up a small subset of all safety events. And um, we also know that even the events they're designed to pick up um, are, um, they're underreported, often because the provider organizations aren't aware that these events are happening in the first place. They don't know what's going on under their own feet. Um, so our current data collection systems don't tell the full story. In terms of other states, um, we're probably more robust in our data collection than most. There are half, fully half of uh, states in this country don't uh, mandate reporting of safety events at all. Um, and as I mentioned before, there is some federal data collection, but um, we wouldn't want to draw any overall conclusions about how we compare nationally. We just don't know. You know a lot of focus these days on inequities in our country and in our healthcare system. Any data you have on racial or ethnic minorities in our state in particular, are they more or less likely to be on the receiving end of medical errors as compared to the population overall? So disparities in patient safety outcomes based on race and race and ethnicity, also age, disability, sex, gender, and, and more um, are, are actually pretty well documented um, here and nationally. And regarding race, um, whenever data are available, we almost always find disparities, actually pretty stark disparities in um, in outcomes. Uh, just to give you an example, the Betsy Women's Center regularly um, prepares reports for the state's 40 birthing hospitals on their rates of severe maternal uh, morbidity. And our analyses show that um, non-Hispanic Black patients have um, severe maternal morbidity rates that are about twice as high as non-Hispanic white patients. And these numbers have been uh, pretty consistent over the past five years when, when you know, we've been able to measure. So um, that's just one example. But as, as I said, whenever you look, you find. Um, we don't always have the data to, to, to look, <laughs> but, but when we do, we find, we find those disparities in, in outcomes by race. So, Barbara, you, you run the Betsy Lehman Center, and the only state agency that's named after a person, as far as we Pollard, I understand. How did the center come to be? Uh, what's its role? Where's your money come from? Uh, do you have to raise it, or does it come from the state treasury? And uh, how can you say Massachusetts is a better place because of the center's work? So uh, we are indeed uh, proud to be uh, one of only a few states, um, three, I think, at this point, with a state agency that's solely de dedicated to uh, healthcare safety improvement. Uh, so we're not a regulatory agency where we we have um, we play a different role. Um, the origin story is obviously very closely connected to Betsy Lehman's death um, and the efforts initially of her family and some visionary leaders um, like Nancy Ridley um, at the Department of Public Health, um, who realized that um, not only did there need to be better regulatory oversight of, of patient safety, uh, but there also had to be space for candid conversations where healthcare providers could come together with others to really work out the work on the systems failures that that lead to these uh, kinds of serious harm events. Um, you know, at the time there was this feeling that um, you know the only conversations that happened about safety was um, it was really in the malpractice context, and you know, and uh, with the with DPH, you know, everyone coming to the table lawyered up and and not sharing any information, and that wasn't going to get um, get anyone anywhere. So um, the center's core mandate is to uh, play um, kind of a convening and coordinating role. We we also have a, a robust research program and programs 
uh, to disseminate information about healthcare safety. And we, we um, increasingly are providing a technical assistance to provider organizations on things like peer support and communication and resolution programs and patient and family advisory councils. Um, as I mentioned, we're not regulatory. And so we're able to maintain the confidentiality of the information we receive. You um, asked about funding. We are um, we're funded out of an assessment on the industry. So the, the hospitals, mainly the hospitals and uh, the health plans um, um, and just, I think, 1% by the ambulatory surgery centers. It's the same funding stream that funds the Center for Health Information Analysis and the Health Policy Commission. And we are affiliated with uh, CHIA. Um, we get our operations support uh, there because we're actually pretty small. We're, I think we're, I don't know, 12 or 14 FTEs at this point, which is a lot compared to what it was 10 years ago, but um, but relative, very small in terms of state agencies. Just back to our convening role, um, we understood um, from the beginning that meaningful progress on patient safety wasn't going to happen just by the Betsy Lehman Center or any single entity, and we really needed a, more of a sustained uh, cross-sector effort. Um, we also understood that safety wasn't high on anyone's uh, agenda, um, and so our that cost of medical error research I mentioned was aimed at raising awareness um, that, that safety is uh, still a serious challenge, and to get the key stakeholders uh, to the table to work on long-term strategies to overcome all these barriers that have been holding back progress. And so the Massachusetts uh, Healthcare uh, Safety and Quality Consortium that we lead is a very unique undertaking that came together about six months before the start of the pandemic, um, but been going uh, strong ever since. And so through the consortium, and I, I don't, I've lost count of how many task forces and advisory groups we have uh, related to it, um, and, and Paul is, is part of that uh, process. I mean, literally hundreds of healthcare leaders, policymakers, consumers have been collaborating, um, collaborated on this uh, a roadmap to healthcare safety for Massachusetts that we released. Um, this past spring, and they're continuing to support implementation of the roadmap. And um, and so the Betsy Lehman Center is, you know, we're, we're just gratified to be able to play an important role as a convener. I see, Barbara, on your website, it says between 20 to 25% of adults in Massachusetts have an experience with medical error in their care or the care of someone close to them. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Should people be more upset and angry and taking to the streets about this? Or um, is that, uh, you don't think that's warranted? 20 to 25% of Massachusetts adults is a lot of people. It is. And that's why, uh, you know, in some ways it's surprising that there isn't greater awareness. We did some research a number of years ago um, with the Frameworks Institute um, around just kind of public perceptions of safety. And we also did a similar uh, uh, study. So how, do, how does the public see patient safety? How does um, how do frontline providers, how physicians see it? And how does the media report on this? And it was so interesting because um, the general public and physicians are actually very closely aligned <laughs> in their thinking, which is, which is that um, people actually, you know, trust and respect their doctors, and as they should, and you want that that good relationship. They also think that the way you, they don't see themselves as being personally at risk. They realize that these kinds of things can happen, but they think they happen to other people. And the way you, um, the way you keep yourself safe is by um, kind of having a caring physician. And they actually have a big distrust of all the things the patient safety experts uh, recommend, all of these systemic improvements. They don't trust systems, systems, processes. They 
sort of actually buy into the whole idea of like, you know, my doctor is, you know, heroically going to, you know, fix my problem. If there are systems in place, if there's too, standardization, then they're not going to be able to do that. And that's, you know, really the hallmark of American, you know, healthcare is this innovation and all of that and the lack of, st- and no standardization. So that's why people aren't taking to the streets when, you know, when bad things happen, um, they tend to attribute it to just random bad luck. Um, it is interesting, though, that when you start talking to people who say, like, it can't really be that bad, you know, when they think about it, uh, they think, oh, yeah, well, this, you know, this error happened in my friend's care or in my parent's care or in my kids. When they think about it, like everyone does have a story, but for some reason it's it's not visible in the way that um, it's like in that um National Academies report, um, I believe there's a comparison to aviation and, and you know, airlines are an industry that um, complex, high risk that have re- like really addressed their safety issues. You know, when planes crash, um, people stop, people pay attention, they they address the issue. Those are high visibility events. They happen in public. Um, when bad things happen to individual patients, they tend to ha- happen behind closed doors. And so there's just, there is this low visibility, low awareness problem that is, it's problematic. It's it's problematic. Um, but we also I just want to say just one other thing. We don't want people to lose trust in the healthcare system because yes, these things are happening, but the the chances of a bad thing happening to you individually um, are low. The chances that there are medical errors happening today in Massachusetts is high. It's a certainty, but we don't want, you know, the answer isn't for people to be scared and stay away from healthcare. Barbara, you mentioned the roadmap to healthcare safety for Massachusetts, which uh, the center published. Can you say a few things about what's in it generally? But I'm also aware that there's an important to it as a proposed pilot project that the center is thinking about. You want to uh, let our audience know about all, all that, if you would. So this um, roadmap to healthcare safety, um, it was really intended to build off the learnings from um, all of the pioneering work that's been done over the past couple of decades. There are five, um, it sets five long-term goals to, for the state. They relate to leadership and improving leadership and culture, operations and uh, uh, engagement, provider organizations, patient family support, workforce well-being, and measurement and transparency. Kind of the the theory of change behind the roadmap is grounded in a three-dimensional approach. First, we need to inform, people need to be informed, and that's when we say people, we mean patients, we mean providers, we mean policymakers, everyone. Um, Everyone plays a role in safety. Um, The second piece is we need to provide implementation support to provider organizations. Um, We know from the failures of the past couple of decades that um, information alone, just saying here's a like here's how some other organization fixed this issue. That's not enough uh, to build a safety culture or safety operations. Um, We actually need to develop uh, learning resources and tools to help providers implement continuous improvement systems that really enable them to routinely identify safety risks and act to eliminate those risks. And third, um, we need to incentivize. I mean, because just having, you know, information and um, implementation supports available, it's a start, um, but we can't assume that providers are going to be intrinsically motivated to use them. And um, and so there have to be some accountability structures that motivate uh, leaders to, to prioritize and to act on safety and to reward them when they do. Always starting with the carrots, but not, um, you know, but moving to the sticks if we, if, if we need to. I mean, do you want me to, ju- I can jump ahead to the- yeah, to Why don't you tell us about the pilot that I referenced, and then John is probably going to turn to our last question. Okay. 
So the pilot um, gets back to this um, original challenge of needing better data. Most healthcare providers operate under a good faith belief that, um, you know, that their individual performance and safety is strong, um, or um, in any case, they're doing as well as they can. And so if we're going to reduce uh, preventable patient harm, providers need to know how they're actually doing on safety so that they can improve. And for that to happen, um, they need more um, timely, actionable information than they have now. So the um, pilot you referenced, um, it's a pilot to uh, leverage new technology that can run in the background of any uh, hospital electronic health record to uh, automatically detect uh, a wide range of patient harm events in real time. So this is pretty groundbreaking. Uh, the data that the systems pick up are then analyzed uh, by clinicians to weed out any false positives. They're entered into um, interactive dashboards that are available to hospital leaders and, and, and frontline staff. Um, and finally, um, hospitals receive expert advising and coaching on how to take the data, how to apply that data and fix the underlying risks that are causing the harm events. This last piece of it is really critical. What's um, what's most exciting about this approach are the dramatic reductions, um, unprecedented reductions in patient harm events that early adopter ho hospitals elsewhere in the country um, have achieved. So... Um, that's where we're looking to break new ground. Um, this would be a first in the nation pilot to introduce these systems um, in a diverse cohort of um, uh, up to eight Massachusetts acute care hospitals, a kind of a feasibility study. These systems are not yet being used by any Massachusetts hospital, but our goal is to determine whether and how an approach like this eventually could be scaled statewide, even beyond hospitals. Hospitals um, to reduce preventable harm and um, you know and the the costs that come come with that. Um, we already know that these systems do a superb job at uh, flagging safety events uh, from patients' clinical records. Um, but we it's also important, and what we're trying to uh, figure out is is whether these systems really help with uh, improving organizational safety culture, operations, workforce well-being, um, and if they could provide the state with a better source of information than we now have about uh, patient safety risks and trends. So back to John's question about like, what are we measuring? Um, well, whatever we're measuring, it's we're not getting that much useful information. Could um, sort of drawing from the clinical record for the first time, would that make a difference? And then um, uh, also, you know, eventually the data Data, uh, being produced could support greater public transparency. We know that um, transparency is is like absolutely critical to holding providers accountable for safety. But most of the data we have, um, it, it it doesn't meet the informational needs of the public. And so I wouldn't rely on the data um, that we currently have to make decisions about my own care. So it's, it doesn't seem right to put that out there. So we need a better source of data if we're going to have public transparency. So um, the pilot is um, just now getting off the ground. Um, we've convened an expert task force to guide the project. Um, we've begun a procurement process um, to secure a leading vendor. And we're going to use the first half of 2024 to um, recruit and select uh, hospitals with the goal of actually implementing a data collection and analysis um, uh, next summer. Um, we have the funding we need uh, to carry us to that point, um, but we we need additional funding, hopefully through the uh, fiscal fiscal year 2025 uh, budget to start um, to start the data collection uh, piece of it. When physicians talk about medical errors and patient injury and so forth, it quickly gets into they complain about 
how high their malpractice liability premiums are. Uh, when patients get involved, they usually complain that they had an injury and the institution would tell them nothing. And there was an initiative in Massachusetts that started a number of years ago on communication apology and resolution. I think it's called the Mass Alliance for Communication and Resolution Following Medical Injury. What has happened to that whole movement? There was a lot of interest and hope that it was going to lead to some breakthroughs. Um, do you know what the standing of that is right now? Yeah, so, so funny you should ask. Um, so that was the um, Macrame uh, program. And as of less than a year ago, um, it has come under the wing of the Betsy Lehman Center. So we have actually absorbed that program and uh, with the goal of really scaling it uh, statewide. Um, I want to be able to say how many uh, hospitals are participating at this point, but it's it's a growing uh, it is a growing number of hospitals. Um, it's had some, you know, really good successes. Um, one of the challenges with that, um, what we're 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 finding uh, is, when you think about when serious harm events happen now, they're the result of a series of, of mistakes. I mean, people are moving through the system. There's a lot of something might happen in a physician's office or in your long-term care facility, and then you end up in a hospital, and then you end up somewhere else. And so how do we make these programs available to uh, patients and providers when the harm event really is the result of a series of uh, mistakes that have happened in different settings, not with the same uh, uh, liability carrier, um, not with not in the same healthcare system even. So, but we we do think that these programs show great promise, and that's why we're making the investment. Barbara Fain, thank you for joining John and I today, telling our audience fair amount about the uh, Lehman Center and. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me.